is open the scriptures to the book of Revelation. I've always wanted to say that. I never have. 1999 was a great year for me. I graduated from Bible college and I fell in love three times. Not how you're thinking. The first was with Africa. Immediately after graduating, I went to Zambia and started an incredible journey that would change the trajectory of my life forever. The second was with Laura Beth, which would also change the trajectory of my life forever. The third, which would have been a lesser love, uh, came when I was introduced to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series. I first read it when I was in Zambia. I was in a foreign land, and there was something about stepping out of that foreign culture into the foreign culture of Tolkien's fictional world of elves and dwarves and men engaged in an epic battle of good and evil that captivated me. I loved each day. I worked with street kids and enjoyed culture and and learned so many things, but I couldn't wait to get to the end of the day when I could open up the Lord of the Rings and see what would happen next. Sauron and his minions represented for me the satanic reality that I beheld in the world around me there. And I loved the hope in the various Christ types that I found throughout the books. But then something unexpected happened. I got back to the States and I was sharing my newfound love of the Lord of the Rings with a friend and he said to me, well, have you ever read The Cimmerillion? I said, I didn't even know there was a Cimmerillion. What's that? And he says, oh, you have to read that. You think Sauron is a bad guy. Let me tell you, if they can deal with Morgoth, Sauron's nothing. Sauron was just one of Morgoth's lieutenants. I was crushed. My whole perspective of Lord of the Rings changed in an instant because I learned that there was more to the story than even what I knew. And it both enriched the story and provided different perspective on the story that I so enjoyed. And I think in a lot of ways that's true for how we read the Bible and understand it. We know parts of it, but we forget to read the Bible in light of the bigger story of God. We can read it from our own perspectives, which isn't necessarily wrong, but there are truths that impact how we read and understand God's story that actually will cause it to come alive in greater ways and bring greater clarity and greater implication for our lives. And so this morning, I want us to consider together how we read and understand the story of the Bible as a whole when we tell God's grand story to others and especially to children. What do we emphasize and what do we not? And we won't be able to take on all of that today, but my hope is to just cause us to think deeply together about how we read and understand God's story and that God's spirit would stir in us a greater desire to know his word and his grand redemptive story. 
Because it's only when we understand God's story, his grand story, that we understand our own place in it and that we know what it means to live before God and each other and in the world in which he has placed us today. So with that, let's pray together. Lord, it's been so good to just pray and to worship and to sing of this great hope before us. And and Lord, we want to have our eyes open to behold you fresh ways and that your word would be alive and that you would do good work in our hearts and in our lives, in our families and in the communities in which you've placed us. And Lord, I pray that you would wow us um, at your greatness and the greatness of, of your word and and the story of all of history that you have written and that you have given to us beautifully in your word. We commit our time to you, Lord. Please be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you come to a story for the first time, where do you begin? In the beginning. Excellent. All right, when we come to the Bible, we begin in Genesis, which means beginnings. Over the coming months, we will be preaching through the book of Genesis together. Uh, that's going to be fun. I No promises for the time commitment. I can't get Peter to make a, a declaration, <laughs> but it's going to be a great journey. Because the foundations of beginnings or of Genesis are so crucial to how we understand the whole Bible, how we understand God and ourselves. If you've been attending training hour, you've heard me talk about how we're all impacted by our worldviews or the lenses through which we view and interpret all of life. Because we all have lenses through which we read the Bible. For example, as Americans, when we come to Genesis, we by nature or more naturally will come with our Western scientific lenses, often demanding of the text what it may not offer or missing the glorious truths of what it does offer. Ugandans, on the other hand, they come with their own set of presuppositions and and lenses. The Baganda, and for those of you who don't know, our family lived in Uganda for 18 years, uh, and we lived in a region called Buganda, uh, occupied or or mainly uh, occupied by the the Baganda tribe. And the Baganda creation story features a man who travels to heaven to marry the daughter of God. And when he gets there, he is given tasks, and they're impossible tasks that he cannot complete. But the spirits help him. In, in very cunning ways. And so he completes his tasks with the help of the spirits and he takes his bride and he takes her to earth. But she's forgetful and she for, has to go back to get something. And when she went back, the evil brother spotted her and he followed her back to earth where he waited until they gave birth. And then the evil brother killed their firstborn son and brought death into the world. The woman's forgetfulness brought death. 
And it's not just a story. That story does impact culture. It does impact uh, the belief system of a people. In fact, all people are uh, grounded or, or will be rooted in their creation story. Culturally here as Americans, we see a battle of creation story. And, and that's not what I'm taking on today, but, but it's important for us to think about. How do we make sense of beginnings? How has God revealed himself through Genesis? Because Genesis 1 and 2 will confront all people in all places at all times. It will confront every culture and it will reorient us all around one center and that is God. And a God who creates with purpose. I can't wait to hear the messages as we walk through those texts together. This morning, I want us to look at three important guides for reading God's story. Because the big story of God does what Genesis does on a, on a, on a foundational level. It does root us. It is how we make sense of the world. It is how we understand God, ourselves, and others, as I've said. And so three important guides for reading God's story. And the first is that we want to read God's story, the beginning from the end, and the end from the beginning. Now, does that sound kind of funny? I'll just say it this way. When we think about God's grand story, Genesis to Revelation, we want to read the beginning in light of the end. We want to read the end in light of the beginning. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. I wonder if you've ever noticed that a very good story, if you've read it and you're familiar with it, it becomes even better in light of the end. Have you noticed that? For example, I've read The Lord of the Rings to each of my boys, starting when they are four years old with The Hobbit. We finish Return of the King by the time they're around seven. And every time I find myself more emotional, choking up more, <laughs> crying, Papa, what's wrong? Just give me a minute. <laughs> Because the themes are so rich, and I love the loyalty, and I, I love sacrifice, and, and I, I just love the way Tolkien weaves this story together. And, and of course, I'm picturing Christ and the gospel and so much, and it just gets me. And it gets better every time. And I think that when we read God's story, it gets better every time, especially when we know the end. And we see it. And we see the way that it goes back and it connects and the way it's woven through. We often can picture the Bible as chopped up in these pieces. And sometimes we can title it, here's the historical literature and here's wisdom literature and here's this and here's this. As if it's a kind of a patchwork book, but it's not. It's one book and it richly takes us from the beginning right to the end. And it just comes alive. It's living, active. There's nothing else like it. There's a progression that works forward. These seeds that grow into this mighty tree by the end. And so to begin, I just want to read uh, some decent portions from Revelation chapter 21. Feel free to listen. Feel free to read along. 
let me just start here at the beginning. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <coughs> Excuse me. Skip over to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Whew. Amen? If we had an hour, I would just start saying, hey, what struck you? What stuck out to you? What made you go, wow, what gave you pause? I think there would be a multitude of answers because this is loaded as we look at, at the end of the story. But it becomes even more beautiful when we have Genesis 1 through 3 in our minds. Just look at the, the comparison. Think about Genesis 1 and Revelation 21.1. 1. 
What do we hear in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You see this parallel in the two. And we look at Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God zooms in on this creation story where he fashions Eve and, and prepares her. In fact, God had said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, designed, prepared specifically for him. And he brought her to the man. And then you hear Revelation 21 verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow. We see God's design and preparation of Eve for Adam pointing to a greater bride being prepared for a greater husband. There's shadow giving way to something greater. When you think about Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Sin enters the world. And death through sin. As mankind is removed from the garden and the place of God's presence where God walked with his people. And then you hear Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The former things have given way to that which is new. And we see that even in verse 5 of Revelation 21. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And that's a, an echo that we'll hear again in, in chapter 22 as it leads us sort of on the, this, this parallel journey. But it's all things new. As we stand back and we look at Genesis and Revelation, we see very clearly the beginning and, and the end. And look what the text says in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see that? He is the Genesis and the Revelation. <laughs> he is the beginning of all things, the end. It is done. And we could spend more time walking through the richness of the Genesis language here. Actually, we could look at the richness of the Genesis language all through scripture because it permeates and it weaves and it grows and it crescendos as we come into revelation and we see this this end and so we read the beginning from the end we read the end from the beginning and we're supposed to the text demands it of us it calls us to do this as we read god's word together second 
we want to read in the context of the center and eternity past and eternity future. Because even though there's beginning and end, there was before beginning and there's after end, which is fascinating. Let's start with the center. And again, as we're in Revelation 21, we find this offer to the thirsty. I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. And that's rich imagery that goes all the way back. The one who conquers will have this heritage and we'll come back to that. Uh, but who won't be there? Right? It, it will be those who are walking in the way of sin, the way of death. And here are these examples given. All right? And they're going to experience a second death. So you had the first death in Genesis 3, this, this uh, spiritual death, as well as the coming of physical death. And then again, there is a second death, this, this parallel between the two for those who are outside of the center. And that's what we're going to see, of course, is, is Christ. Because sin is real and, and judgment is real. The end is real. Listen to verse 9, though, of Revelation 21. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So there's a parallel here back to 21. And again, it's, it's amazing because it's sort of like Genesis 2, which zooms in uh, on the creation of, of Eve. Uh, here in Revelation, there's this zooming in. Uh, with, with this bride that he had mentioned in 21. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And we see that in verse 11, she will have the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel and jasper clear as crystal. And we walk through this, this garden imagery, really, the, the, the precious stones and, and the water that's there and uh, and you get this, this city that is, yes, I just had elf in my head, ginormous. Um, it's huge with foundations and, and gates. Um, sort of sounds like the garden where they were removed and there were angels there guarding the way in. Here, it's open. All right. And we see that, that the nations are going to enter in. Right? So again, there's this beautiful imagery. But, but I want you to notice what won't enter into this city because there are those who will enter in. But verse 27 says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written where? There's a book. It's a lamb's book, the lamb's book of life. Connecting the beginning of the story and the end of the story is this lamb, who if we read the story, we see stands at its very center. And that's true of the book of Revelation as a whole. All right, if you've ever been daunted by Revelation, which I was for many, many, many years, don't be daunted. Read it. Read it and look for portrayals of Christ. Look at Jesus because it will encourage and strengthen you. And that's what it is for. I love the picture of Revelation 5. With the living creatures and the elders, 
They're singing this song. They see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they fell down singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Awesome picture. So this lamb imagery points us to the reality of the gospel, which is the center. This lamb who was slain, who purchases men and women, children from every tongue, tribe, and language, and makes them one. This lamb has a book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and there are names in it. Well, from there, from Revelation 5, if you look at 13, we find this same imagery, the same wording of, of this book of life. Look at Revelation 13. And though I'm not going to spend any time in the passage itself, um, we would have, need a long time. Uh, here it's talking about this beast that's allowed to make war on the saints. It's given authority. And then it says in verse 7, no, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, this beast, this opposer of God, this imager of the serpent. Again, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Now, you might have a different way of wording it in your translation because you can translate it sort of in different ways, different emphases. Um, regardless of how you translate it, there is a lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world. He, he didn't die before the foundation of the world. He died on Calvary. But before the foundation of the world, that plan was in place. The lamb was present and he would die. And at that time, he had a book and there are names in it. We find in Revelation at the very end, those are those who are his and they will be with him forever and ever. Amen. And so before the foundation of the world, there's already a plan, there's already a book, there's already a lamb, there's already a, a, a I almost used the word a path, but that's not the right word. A decreed sovereign purpose that God will pursue in his creation. And it's not just from this text. It's all over the place. So we kind of put these together as we read through the story of Scripture. We see it come alive. This lamb who is the center, but who is also from before the beginning. For example, in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, says, Because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So even before the world was made, there was grace prepared for sinners. The fall didn't catch God off guard and we'll see that as we walk through the story. But there's already a purpose. There's grace that's been prepared through a lamb who will be slain. And then we see in 1 Peter 1, verses 29 to 31, that you have been redeemed 
With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, for he, or Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And then we go to Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so this lamb before the foundation of the world that has grace prepared for sinners already has adopted or predestined for adoption people for God chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. Finally, from John 17, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, before before the world was made, God was. He existed eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love and in oneness and unity. The God who was three in one had a plan, and He would reveal His glory and magnify His glory through the Son who would die, a lamb slain with grace prepared for sinners chosen and planned for adoption, to be brought into the love of God and the family of God before sin even entered the world. Is that crazy? That's amazing. And it forces us to grapple with the reality that God isn't caught off guard and that he has a purpose and a plan that he will accomplish. And as we go from Genesis to Revelation, we find over and over again, God, working, God sovereignly working through his people and in the midst of what feels like utter chaos and rebellion, a perfect purpose to where he is leading us. When we read the unfolding of God's story with this bigger picture in mind, with the beginning and the end and the end from the beginning, as well as what was before, we also want to think about what will forever be. Because we will be with him and we will see his face and we will worship and we will live not in clouds in the sky but in a new heaven and a new earth and that is real life and it will be amazing. All of that coming as we read this grand story of scripture. Now we're set up to to think about then reading between uh, the, the eternity past and eternity future in Genesis and, and Revelation. Third, as we read through the story of Scripture, we want to read it according to the natural storyline or plot line of the Bible itself because it does move us with key characters and key purpose. As you'll see, third then, we want to read according to the Bible's covenantal structure. Okay, what does that mean? It means that that God delights 
to make covenant. And he has entered into covenant relationships, promises. Uh, we'll, hopefully, Lord willing, as we walk through, we'll get to see some of those as we come through Genesis and the way that those play together. But really, we want to look at key characters um, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Israel, or Moses, from Israel to David, and then from David to Jesus. And we want to see the way the Bible fits together because that's the way it naturally flows. Right? In the midst of everything else that's there, there's this flow between these characters leading us to Jesus and God's covenants with his, uh, with his people. Each covenant that God makes is a building towards the fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. So how do we, how do, we do this? Because that's big. All right? I wrestled through because I want this to be practical and tangible for us as we think about God's story, as we teach God's story. We want to, this to not just be something that's up in the head. Right? I have encountered over the years so many I mean, I want to say hundreds of young people that reach the age of 18 and they've grown up homeschooled or Christian school and you give them just those simple names that I just put on there. You, you put this list before them and say, mix it up and say, put it in the right order. And they can't. They can't do it. I mean, I remember as a young Christian for the first time, somebody was talking about Abraham and I remember going, who is Abraham? That's an important question. I needed that answer, but it's got to be who was Abraham and what was before and then what's after Abraham to be able to think in a way that the Bible fits together as one story because it is. It is not a patchwork of stories. Each story is building on what's before. And the more grounded you are in Genesis, and you guys are going to see this, right? As we preach through it, you're going to start seeing it everywhere. Right? And then when you get in through Exodus, you start seeing Genesis and Exodus everywhere. And then the Pentateuch, you realize, man, if I don't know the Pentateuch, I'm missing out on so much. Because it makes the Bible come alive because it's all building on what's been before. Weaving together. Revealing God. Who He is. How He interacts with His people. And the great fullness that is given to us in Christ. Because he is fulfillment of all that has come before. And so, sort of my, my simple, but I, ho I hope it's helpful attempt to, to summarize sort of a way to do this practically would be to just take a simple theme. And this is a theme that I love. It's the royal family theme of Scripture. Okay? And just take it through those, sort of those three grids of beginning and end, end and beginning, before, right after, and then this, this plot line. How, how would we actually do this? How do we think uh, according to the grand story or narrative of, of Scripture? Well, uh, let's start from the end from the beginning. Look at Revelation 21. If you're still there, 
And by the way, this theme is so important, so I didn't choose it just haphazardly. This is crucial, and I think a, a, a lot of those who, who would attend Reformed background, Reformed churches, we love to delight in the royal theme, and, and we should. God is king. In fact, here, he's our risen king, and that's right. But it isn't fullness, right? Uh, even to say royal family theme, well, that's limiting, right? There's more, there's more, there's more. But one of the things that I love is how this royal family theme fit together and flows together throughout the Bible. And so how do we see this? Look at Revelation 21. As we come to the end, there's this language. After I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the offer of this living water to the thirsty. Verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Okay, Heritage is family language. And what heritage will the one who conquers have? Look at what God says. I will be his God and he will be what? My son or my daughter. He will be my son. The sonship language is there because it's a sonship rooted in the son. Your sonship or daughterhood, being children of God, is rooted in the son of God. All right? So, for all of eternity, we are made children of God. We have a heritage with our Father. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants, there's royal language in a sense, okay, servants will worship Him. But they will see His face, look at this, His name will be on their foreheads. Okay, that's taking us back to Abraham. This name, uh, God's name, it's family language. It's not uh, a literal, okay, this is an image. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Royal, you see it? Royal imagery, reigning, family imagery, sons and daughters, heritage, the name of God upon us. We bear his name. That's awesome. I want my children to grow recognizing there is a name greater than McFarland that I want them to bear. I don't want them to bear my name. I want them to bear his name. I want them to know what it means to be a loved son and daughter, but I want them to know that there is a greater love of a greater father right? And I want to have my home image this reality of this heritage that God has prepared for his sons and his daughters, servants and worshipers and lovers of Christ, our King and our brother by spiritual adoption. Okay, these foundations are crucial. Second, what about eternity past? Well, what did we hear about adoption from Ephesians 1? Do you remember? There was an adoption prepared and planned from when? Before the foundation of the world. And because Jesus is the eternal Son, our adoption is through Christ the Son. That's what allows us to become adopted sons and daughters. 
We could be saved, and we are. Praise God. The Lamb was slain. Our sin is forgiven. Jesus takes the wrath of God. We are justified. No longer sin counted against us. We are given Christ's righteousness. Amen. And our hope of sonship is in the hope of the eternal Son to His eternal Father and a people who are brought into Christ. We are then made sons and daughters in the Son. And so there is an eternal adoption planned. And how beautiful to see that imaged right here in our midst. And then this, this thing that will be forever and ever us reigning and worshiping and enjoying as family of God from before eternity, eternity past or before creation in eternity past. And as you walk through the unfolding of the storyline. You see it all over the place. Because right in the garden, Adam is created as a son of God. Not the eternal son of God, but an imager. He images God. He's made in God's image. And that's not my language. That's, that's the Bible's language because the book of Luke specifically says that. As, as Luke records the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam in Luke 3.38, he refers to Adam as son of God because he's made by his creator who is king in his image. And so he is imaging his creator and he is son of God and Eve a daughter of God. They're a shadow of something greater to come. That's what makes the rebellion in the garden that much crazier because they rebel against their king and, and his command and their father and his command, right? Their father who had prepared for them a garden, who gave provision and protection and all that they needed. It's amazing how we can actually miss presenting the story of Genesis in family language, but it's there and it's beautiful. And then they are removed from home. And in us is a longing for home, always. It's grounded in that place, this greater home, eternal home. But God makes a promise and he will overcome man's rebellion and he will crush the head of the serpent. We find then people calling upon the name of the Lord and, and with, with Noah, that this, for the, the covenant that God makes as he judges and brings salvation, this global implications, he saves the family of Noah and he makes promises and the seed of the promise will come through Shem, which means name. God's blessing will come through name because true name is from the Lord. And again, that imagery, right? His name on our foreheads and calling on his name and it all plays together. And, and then at Babel, people seek a name for themselves, their rebellion against God. And that'll be fun to preach that. And as God brings judgment and scatters the families of the earth, he comes and he reveals himself to Abram and he makes him promises in this family context. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna make you a people, right? Offspring. I will make your name great. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And you see this rich, family language pointing us ahead and God makes a covenant and this leads us then to 
to God's covenant with Israel, whom he calls his firstborn son. And this, this uh, covenant that God makes uh, with his firstborn son, he says they will be a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. And he gives them the law, which is an outflow of this calling, reflecting God to the nations and bringing the nations to God, where God says, I will dwell with them and be their God, and they will be my people. And they will be the means of the fulfilling of the promises to Abraham. But then in their rebellion, we find this story through the time of Judges, and, or the conquest and then Judges. And again, I want to be careful. I know this is so much. But to have a framework of the story is so important as you talk about it, as you think about it. Because then you get to David where God makes royal promises. And he had made royal promises to Abraham, this royal family themes, right? And to David, he promises that you will have a son and he will sit on my throne, or he will sit on the throne forever. You see Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and this has got global implication and this royal sonship. And we walk through, and of course, we know where the story leads. Even through exile and rebellion, there is promise we hear in Hosea, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And that promise comes to fulfillment in Christ, the Son of God who comes to earth and who lives a perfect life and who reveals the Father. And you read the book of John over and over again. He makes known the Father. And you hear the language of John. For as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God. And you see all of this coming together as Jesus dies and rises. And then he says to the disciples, yes, go and tell my father and your father. Right? Go and tell him, my father and your father. Go and tell your brothers. Um, and he calls God his father and their father. Um, it's awesome. All right, so we see this, this, the way these themes flow. Because when we're in Jesus, who is the true Israel, who is the fulfillment of all that Noah pic- Adam pictured, Noah pictured, Abraham pictured, Israel, and Moses, and David, and you walk through the story, it's Christ the center. And the truths just start coming alive. And we start saying, am I living in light of the reality of what God has revealed in his word? What am I missing? I want to get in this book. I need it. I need the foundations. I need the beginning. I need the end. And I want to see the way it unfolds that I can understand what God has done in his son. Because the New Testament writers labor to show Jesus the fulfillment, the fulfillment, the fulfillment, the fulfillment. I keep saying it because it's over and over. Fulfillment of what? We've got to know the story. So I hope that in these weeks and and really months to come, as we walk through Genesis, come hungry to know the story. Come with minds that are thinking, how does this connect to the end? And, And how is this pointing to the fullness and fulfillment in Christ. And just think and start making those connections. And we're going to do some of it, but you can only do so much in a sermon, right? 
like this. It's, it's too much. But we're on the journey together. And we want to be wowed by God's grand story. That we would live as a people of the story, knowing that we are in his story right now. Because it didn't end. We're in it. And you're in it. Your life has a purpose in God's story. May we walk together in the the truths of this glorious royal family uh, relationships that we have been offered as a part of his body and his church. May we not waste what we have been given and called into. For as the book of Revelation ends, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like that was like trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hose. Um, Lord, thank you that you are the offer of living water and that as we step back from the grandness of eternity past to future to what you've revealed through your word and what you're doing right now, that there is this beautiful offer that the one who conquers will have this heritage, that you will be our God and we will be your sons, your daughters, and that to the thirsty you give from the spring of the water of life without payment, that you offer us yourself as we heard last week through the preaching of your word and the beauty of the communion table, the Lord's table. Lord, that, that we get God. God, I pray that we would be a people of the story and that we would love it, and know it, and live it, and teach it to our children, that they would teach it to their children. And, and God, in these weeks to come, would you wow us uh, just by the beauty of, of your word and and even just the beauty of Genesis. God, we want to know who we are in you. And therefore, we need to know who you are. So would you open our eyes to behold you? And may we behold Christ together as you change us into his image. For the glory of your name, amen.